You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. Hi, friends here in the building and watching online. I'm so excited to be here today with actual people and with you people who are also actual people, but on the other side of the screen, I'm Boaster and Brady, and welcome to October. We made it. Congratulations on making it this far. We're going to um, keep going, you guys. This year is bound to let us out, right? Uh, we're in part two of Joel. Joel is an interesting book to pick. It's, uh, it's a prophetic book. It's tiny, and it has this really powerful message locked inside the words. Last week, Pastor Steve kicked off this series uh, looking at this, this thing that Joel the prophet says. He talks about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And he talks about an event that has already happened, this very devastating event in Israel's history. He talks like we know what it is, even though we don't know what it is. We don't know who their enemy was exactly. We don't know exactly what happened. We just know it was really bad. And so Pastor Steve talked a lot about the part that repentance plays when we run into a devastating situation. This week in chapter 2, we're looking at an event that is happening right now. Joel really comes to the people and says, okay, I told you what did happen, what has happened, and now I'm going to tell you what is going to happen now unless you repent. So Joel brings to them this message of devastation, and, and what Joel does for us is he shows us what happens when the chips are down, when your world falls apart, when you're up against an enemy you didn't see coming and you don't know how to get out of this fight. And it's clear in Joel that God is part of the problem. God has shown up, and he is not happy with Israel. And this is really an interesting feature of this book. And so um, during the wildfires, which seems now like three crises ago, but it did happen. Remember when we were on fire? It happened. Um, my husband and I were going to help plan an event to help set up for a big event. Um, it was totally a COVID <laughs> sanctioned event. Um, but we were going to help set up for this thing. And we wanted just some time together before we went. And so we stopped at a restaurant for breakfast. And uh, while we were there, we were just kind of like rehearsing, isn't this, you know, God is good in spite of all of this stuff. And we lingered a little too long. And we're like, we need to get going. We need to get going to this event. And right at that moment, the waitress came to our table and she said, I'm so sorry. The wind just blew a power line down. It's blocking all the exits to the restaurant and no one can leave. You're stuck here. And we, you give you that sense of panic, like you get the first time you put a mask on. You're like, <laughs> I can't breathe here. I have to leave. We have to leave. We have to go to this event. And we walked outside, and sure enough, this power pole had fallen and totaled a, a car. This poor guy had borrowed his mom's car to drive to work that day, and it was, was gone. Um, but th that, that was his crisis. Our crisis was we needed to go, and we couldn't get out, and then they let us they gave us permission to kind of walk out and have somebody pick us up. Our car was stuck there for three days in the parking lot because with all the fires going on, they didn't have personnel to come and get the power line off the ground. And the thing about it is when I looked at that power line, it was tiny. It's just a little tiny thing laying across the road. But they stationed someone there 24 hours a day while it was down because it could kill somebody. And just a minute before that line fell, a minute before the devastation came, that power line was doing a really good job. It was powering our city. It was doing good things. But the power in a different position 
is deadly. And that's a little bit what's happening here. Israel has gotten on the wrong side of the power of God. Now it's in a different position. And Israel doesn't know what to do with it. And so Joel is going to help walk them through it. Here's what we do when we're not sure what to do with God. When we're not sure where is he in this mess, when we're not sure, did I earn it? Did I cause it? Is it coming? Can I turn it around? What can I do now? This is what chapter two is about. And while chapter one focused very intently on repentance, chapter two is going to focus on something else. And I'm excited to tell you about it. So in the past 10 years, ever since my family entered a really devastating battle with a, a terminal disease uh, and my husband's death, so many people have told me their story of devastation. So many people have told me about the day the armies lined up around their homes or around their marriage or around their children, the things that they have faced and fought. And what I have discovered is people generally fall into one of two camps. They're either broken and bitter and frustrated at God and checked out of relationship with him or they're more beautiful, more strong, more soft, more compassionate, more purpose-filled than they ever were before. That's just what I've observed. They, they usually fall into one of those two camps. And so when I really stop to think about what is the difference in those two groups of people, what is it? And, and I want to make it clear, those two groups of people still feel the same amount of pain. People who are purpose-filled, it's not that they don't feel it. It's that they've channeled it into some other thing. So what is the difference? What makes someone become uh, their most, the most beautiful version of themselves through pain or through battle? What I've come down to, and disagree with me if you want, I don't care, but what I've discovered is that it is an understanding of the character of God. People who truly know and understand and trust the character of God go through battle differently. They face things differently. And I know we're in a world, and we have been for a long time, that really has wondered and questioned, what do we do with the idea of character? Does character really matter? Because there's also talent and skill and beauty and uh, charisma. There are lots of things other than character packaged up in our humanity. So really, what part does character play in all of that? Really, if I, if I want a good accountant and I'm not going to have him babysit my kids, does it really matter what his character is? I would contend character matters. It matters differently for different people in different roles, but it matters because if you came to me and said, I want to remodel my kitchen and I need a really good tile guy, I would say, you know what? I have the best tile guy ever. He is great. He will do a great job. Your kitchen will look like the Taj Mahal. He's fast. The only thing is sometimes he takes the money and leaves before he does the job. Sometimes he runs off with your money, but when he doesn't, he is so good at his work. Not a single person would hire him because we need character too. Character matters. Again, sometimes if you don't want somebody to babysit your kid, you may hire him to do your tile work, but I would propose you are not going to faithfully or trustingly serve a God who you don't believe in. If you don't believe that he is good, that he is honest, that he is unchanging, that he is steadfast and faithful, you can believe he created every star in the sky and it is not going to matter when the chips are down if you don't trust that he is a good, faithful God. 
It's just the truth. And honestly, I think everybody knows it. But it's hard to do the work to say, I got to know the character of God and believe it if I'm going to fall, if I'm going to go through battle faithfully and come back better. And so Joel does this for us. This is the gift of this book. Joel reminds us over and over again, this is who God is. This is his character. Do you know an understanding of the character of God? That is theology. That's all it is. We like to dress it up and say big words and attach big doctrine to things, but that's all theology is, is understanding that God is real. He has opinions and we know what they are. He, he acts a certain way. If, if I did something, if, if I took money from your purse while you're worshiping, idea, <laughs> I hope that you would say that's out of Bo's character. So understanding the character of God is a big deal. Constantly throughout the Bible, it uses this one word, and it is a big word. And every time you see it, you're about to see something about who God is. It is the word remember. Constantly, the Bible writers are going, remember when he buried the Egyptians in the Red Sea? Remember when he was faithful to you and you didn't deserve it? Remember when he hardened Pharaoh's heart and led you out of Egypt? Remember, remember, remember that? You could right now list a few remembers of your own. Remember when you didn't think you could find the strength to wake up and get out of bed? Remember when you didn't think you'd survive that relational breakdown? Remember when God showed up. This is the character of God. And even though the circumstances of our world and this year are spinning around us and always changing, the character of God is true and steadfast and does not change. In fact, we attach a big word to that. It is the word immutable. A big word to say God doesn't change. If he didn't steal money from your purse today, he won't steal it tomorrow. And you don't need to waste energy on the question, why did God steal from me? Because he won't. So Joel is going to show us who God is, and he's going to give us ways to see his true character. Chapter 2 starts with a bang. It is a big, and you, you guys, I had a birthday, so you know what that means. Another level up in my reading glasses. This is exciting. Starts with a bang. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Joel here is announcing that something is coming. In fact, something is here, and it is not good news. The description of this invader goes on for 11 verses, but it is best summed up in verse 6. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish, and every face turns pale. This is a really scary bad guy, whoever it is. Some scholars think it was locusts. Some think it was a whole other group of people. We don't know, and that part is fascinating to me. Joel gives us 11 verses on what this enemy will do, but never tells us who the enemy is. You know why? Well, God is going to turn around. Spoiler. God is going to turn the enemy around based on the people's repentance. But the, the identity of our enemy is never, ever the main thing. The Bible doesn't spend that much time on enemies. Jesus didn't spend that much time on enemies. We're the ones 
who spend all day talking about who our enemies are and what they do and why they're the bad guy and why you can't fight with those guys because they're never fair and they don't play right and they're not good people and here's my enemy and I'm up against the enemy all the time and we lay awake in bed at night figuring out how to fix our enemy, fight our enemy, and that is not what the Bible actually ever does. The Bible instead instead says what? Know God. You need to know God. And you need to magnify his character. And you need to rehearse who he is. The Bible never once says, remember how powerful your enemy was? Remember how they took you out? Remember how you were humiliated before them? Remember how powerful your dumb enemy is? Man, they're dumb. Man, they're big. Man, you're little compared to them. The Bible doesn't do that. It always says God is bigger. God is better. God is greater. You're on the right side. And so I think if there's one thing we could take home today, let's just stop talking about our enemies so much. Let's stop trying to fix them. I still feel like that is my responsibility. I've got to make sure my enemy knows they're on the wrong side of the law. I do not. The Bible gives me no actual jurisdiction for that. Not my problem. And so focus on who God is. Focus on his plan, his purpose, wholehearted devotion to him is single-minded in saying, I want to know you. I want to know you more. And I'm going to open up my life so that you can show me where I've got you wrong. So that you can show me where I have ascribed to you things that you would never do to me. Who, who is this God that we talk about who would take a child or ruin a marriage or destroy a business because he just does it for fun? That's not the character of God. So focus on knowing him. Focus on knowing his character, not on knowing all the things that aren't him. There are a gajillion things that aren't God. Who cares? There are a million tiny little G-gods. Who cares? This is all about the one big G, supreme, immutable, all-knowing, all-powerful God that we serve. So that's exactly what Joel does. He keeps reminding people in this beautifully poetic and prophetic language who their God is. And he he keeps reminding them that, that something bad is coming and it's not good, but God is good. And so they have the chance to experience the destruction or stop it through repentance. He says, therefore also now, says the Lord, turn and keep on coming It's not going to work ever. I can't do it. I always think I'm going to be able to see this with my own eyeballs, but I can't. Um, Therefore, also now, says the Lord, turn and keep on coming to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, until every hindrance is removed and the broken fellowship is restored. This is out of the Amplified Version, which is such a fun translation to use because it does so much of the study work for you. But listen to it again. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, until every hindrance is removed and the broken fellowship is restored. Rend your hearts and not your garments and return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and he evokes his sentence of evil when his conditions are met. Um, So we can change God's mind. How do we change God's mind? Turn to him with all your heart, fast, weep and mourn, rend your heart and not your garments. Easy, not really. Simple, not easy. Um, Because... Inside of this moment, inside of every moment, inside of every battle, inside of every piece of suffering, inside of every moment of chaos outside our doorstep or inside our doorstep, there is opportunity to become something we weren't before, always. 
There is always hidden in that soil opportunity. And so when we spend all our hope and energy trying to get off that soil, we can miss what God wants to do in us and then through us. He says this in Joel 2.14, who knows, but what he will turn, revoke your sentence and leave a blessing behind him, giving you the means with which to serve him, even a cereal or meal offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Uh, here, Joel quotes Exodus. He reaches back and he pulls what? Some of God's character out of Israel's history. And he says, remember this. Remember that who God was to them, he will be to you. Because you may change, but he has not. So Joel is just reminding us God is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is kind. He changes his mind from doing harm. This warning is a gift to them. It's a chance to change the course of their future just by remembering who God has been in the past. Pastor Steve talked about repentance last week, but we see again in chapter 2 that sincere repentance turns first to God and then away from something else. First we turn to God with all our heart, and that by nature turns us away from something else. That's just how that is. If I want to go to New York City, I'm going to get on a plane to go to New York City because I want to be in New York City, and that is automatically going to take me away from the West Coast. I don't have to decide I'm going to leave the West Coast. I have to decide where I'm going. What I want is restored relationship with God. What I want is to be right there inside his heart, inside his purpose. And in that decision, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to naturally turn away from sin. But if I decide I'm not going to do the sin, I'm not. I'm not. I don't see the sin. I don't do the sin. I'm not doing it. I really want to, but I'm not doing it. I'm turning away. I'm leaving sin behind. That's what I'm going to do. That is not the progression of repentance because repentance is built on love for God and not, I'm, I, you come at me if you need to, but not primarily hatred of sin. Love for God is in first position. We can serve God wholeheartedly, even when there's stuff clogging up our lives. And so at the further we move toward loving him, the more that will take us away from the things that distract us and keep us held back. One of the most beautiful verses, this is in another translation, rend your heart and not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Rending garments was a way the people of Israel showed <clears throat> that they were truly sorrowful. It was a part of their culture to, to you know, rip their clothes. And um, it, it wasn't necessarily connected to anything authentic. And so Joel says here, rend your heart. You, what you need is a broken heart. Not because God wants to break you, but because God wants to get to the parts of you that are hidden away from him. It's not like a knife-wielding stranger. It's like a surgeon with a scalpel. Will you let him open up your heart so that he can get to the festering places? That's what repentance does. It opens us up to let his healing in, to let restoration in, to let forgiveness in. And we look sometimes, I think, at God like he's so mad at us 
and I need to repent so he won't be mad at me. And that is not a good view of the character of God. I don't think God hates sin because it breaks his heart. I think God, if sin breaks God's heart because he knows it breaks us. I think that, that sin is not the thing that keeps us away from him. When I was in Bible college, we had a professor that taught us um, sin separates you from God, and he taught us how to evangelize other people. And he said to actually use the hand motion. Sin separates you from God because he thought that would be a powerful visual for people in the airport who were trying to evangelize. And that was, those were the days. And um, so I, have, I went through a few years of my life and finally one day thought, I don't know that sin does separate us from God. I think in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid, but God came running after them. God went looking for them. And then it says, we were in the garden and we were hiding because we were what? Shamed. Shame separates us from God. Sin, God can handle. Shame, we can't handle. So it makes us hide away and repentance opens up our heart to let God back in. Jesus mirrors this line again in Matthew 15, 8. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Clearly, we can do the right thing in a wrong way. Clearly, our hearts, both in worship and repentance, can look right. We can go through the motions. We can show the watching world something that we don't actually feel in our hearts. And our hearts are closed off. I remember one time I, I came uh, to church, and I was a little bit late, and I was really excited to get in and worship. And on my way in, somebody stopped me in the lobby and they confronted me on something they didn't like about me. And it was pretty mean. And I didn't have time to, to deal with it or whatever. But I just came in and I sat in my regular spot over there. And I was just like so uh, really hurt and also pretty angry. And I was thinking of all the things I wish I would have said to that guy. I wish I could have said, and now I wonder, I'm going to write him a letter and, and I'm going to da da da. And I was thinking all kinds of unholy things about him and his future and all of these things. And the whole time I was worshiping, you know, it was 2009. So we're probably singing how great is our God. Cause that's what we saying then. And I was worshiping and do because even though my heart was breaking, I felt the need for a church that was watching to worship. I felt the need to go through the motions. And I remember when it hit me, as I'm standing there, it hit me, God, I am not even worshiping. I am pretending to worship. My heart is so far from worship right now. I am in a I am in an automatic I'm on autopilot. And I remember just feeling like I am so rotten. I am a wretched woman and I am so sorry. And I am so sorry I'm not bringing you my whole heart of worship. And I remember Jesus just saying so kindly to me, I don't, you could sit this one out. I don't really need your whole heart of worship right now. Why don't you just bring me your wholehearted pain? Why don't you bring your whole heart to me? That's worship too. Just bring me what's true of you. Bring me the reality of you, and then we can be close. But as long as you hide away behind a facade of how great is our God, we're never going to get closer. And so this rend your heart is not punishment. It is a gift. This idea of I'm going to let you into the deep, dark places is a gift to us. 
And we are always going to be inclined to hide behind the motions, behind what looks good, behind, I'm sorry, the masks. <laughs> it's just there. It's easy. I had to take it. But you, you don't get to take your masks off, even though I just said that. Um, but when we let repentance dig deep into the soul sickness that we try to hide, that's when his spirit has access to us. And that's when we have access to restoration. So Joel goes on to say, Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he spared his people. And the Lord answered his people, Behold, I will send you grain new wine and oil, and by them you will be satisfied. I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. This is God showing up to a vulnerable, struggling people. This is God rewarding an honest display of repentance with a disproportionate display of mercy. We bring him this little bit of, I think I'm really sorry. I want to turn to you with all my heart. I don't know what that looks like. I'm not sure what it will cost me, but all I know is I'm just bringing you my life and my money and my kids and my brokenness and my stupid failures. I'm bringing you my politics. I'm bringing you all my stuff. And in that, God brings this flood of mercy. I think I've experienced it so many times during this whole crazy year where it's just like, I'm so tired and I am exhausted and my thoughts aren't right. And I'm not, I know I'm not lined up with your word and who you are right now. Could you meet me? And he meets me with so much mercy. Look at the rest of it. The threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years eaten by locusts. The years eaten by locusts because of their sin, actually. This is God saying, I'm going to repay you back what you yourself squandered. This is irrational mercy. You will have plenty to eat until you are satisfied. You will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. My people will never again be put to shame. He takes shame out of the game. So we see here this divine reversal, a complete turnaround. And I wonder if we could just stop for a minute here in our building and there on your sofa can we stop and take a pause and imagine for a moment, like use some prophetic imagination. Imagine what would it look like in your life to have a complete reversal? What might be on the other side of repentance? What would God restore to you? What would it look like for your family, for the people who depend on you? What would it look like for our nation to have a complete reversal? What would it look like for our legacy, for our community, for our church? What would reversal even look like? Because I feel like if we don't have some sort of picture of what God might do, we're going to get stuck right here in what is happening around us. And what's happening around us is small compared to what God wants to do in our land, in our hearts, in our families, in our homes, in our work. And so just for a minute, would you let the Holy Spirit speak to you about how that could look? The final word from Joel is the reward and the restoration that comes as our hearts are broken 
and healed by God, he says, then you will know that I am present in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. The presence of God ultimately is our exceeding great reward. It is the ultimate reversal. He takes us from being far from him to being filled with him. He takes us from alone and hustling for our survival to immersed in God's presence and provision. His presence is our reward. It is what's on the other side of repentance. It is the result and the outcome and the byproduct of restoration. This is what it looks like to serve a God whose mission is to create, restore, redeem. So Jesus, we love you, and we give you, first of all, we just give you our world today. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to fix it. We don't know how to fight. But God, today we hide in the shadow of your wing, and we say we will pursue you. We pursue your goodness. We pursue your truth. We pursue your holiness. We want to we pursue your love with all of our hearts and fill us, God, with the love that it takes to be good voices inside a falling, failing kingdom. And God, then we bring you our families and our lives, our money and our fears, our wounds, our frustrations, our weariness, our depression, we bring you all the things that feel like the locusts have gotten the better of us. And we ask, oh, good God, would you show us how to repent in a way that brings such true restoration that it cannot be denied. We thank you overall more than anything for your abiding, abundant presence. You are good and you do good. You are good and you do good and we know it. We stick our flag in that ground and we stand there and we will defend that ground. You are good and you do good. And we love you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here this morning. We're so glad and so blessed to have you with us. We pray that you have the very best weekend of your lives. See you next week.